to high truths on drugs and addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. Addiction comes in various flavors, alcohol, opioids, marijuana, and more. Today, we will focus on benzodiazepines, as well as a combination of multiple medications that depress the nervous system. Benzodiazepines are anti-anxiety medications such as Valium, known as diazepam, Xanax, known as alprazolam, clonazepam, known as clonidine, and Librium, also known as clonidopoxide. The death diary research I conducted shows that opioids are number one for medications that cause death, but benzodiazepines are number two. A few key statistics. Over 30% of opioid deaths include benzodiazepines, according to the CDC. In a study from North Carolina, people prescribed opioids and benzodiazepines had a 10-time increased likelihood or overdose deaths than those who used opioids alone. Xanax accounts for 50% of all benzodiazepine fatalities, and 50% of people with a substance use disorder will develop a benzodiazepine disorder. You may be surprised as who is most commonly prescribed benzodiazepines. Maybe you're thinking, oh, it's those young kids who take the Zanzibars or Xanaxes. But no, the number one prescribed population that gets benzodiazepines is older women, women 65 to 80. The problem with too much benzodiazepines include depression, falls, cognitive impairment, motor vehicle collisions up to 60%, accidental overdose, especially with alcohol, opioids, and sleep aids. Today, our question, Two High Truths, comes from a medical expert herself, Dr. Bianca Tribuzio. Hi, Dr. Lev. My name is Dr. Bianca Tribuzio. I really enjoy your podcast. I'm a physical medicine and rehabilitation and pain medicine physician at Sharpery Staley in San Diego. I am also one of the co-chairs of the healthcare task force for the San Diego Prescription Drug Abuse Task Force. Through the task force, we have done a lot of work with guidance regarding opioids and safe prescribing in the medical community. This year, we would like to tackle the safe prescribing of benzodiazepines and provide assistance with tapering if indicated. Can your expert share some of the best practices related to benzodiazepines in tapering of these medications and concurrent CNS depressants? Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Bianca Trebuzio, for your question and your leadership in the San Diego medical community. Hands down, the world leaders in managing benzodiazepine addiction is the Veterans Administration, the VA. Years ago, they've identified a problem with opioids and benzodiazepines and instituted several programs to tackle the problem. The programs resulted in significant and statistical success. The VA publishes a number of clinical tools, and I will provide a link to them on the show notes. I reached out to leaders of the VA to discuss the latest work with benzodiazepines, as well as combination of medications that depress the central nervous system. A special shout out to Dr. Friedhelm Sandbrick from the VA, who I met serving on the Federal Opioid Task Force. He referred me to Dr. Elsa Weekers, a geriatric psychiatrist and faculty at the University of California in San Francisco and at Yale University. She specializes in the care of veterans with late um, life, mood and anxiety and trauma related disorders. She's passionate about advocating for improved access, quality and delivery of healthcare for people with mental health and substance use disorders. She's a collaborator on several grants that focus on improving the quality of psychotropic prescribing. Her leadership extends to the professional organization, the American Association of Geriatric Psychiatry and the American Psychiatric Association. Her medical education started at Duke for medical school, Massachusetts General for psychiatry residency, and Yale for geriatric fellowship. Dr. Weaker's bio is available on the High Truth show notes. Dr. Ilsa Weakers, welcome to High Truths. Hello, thank you so much for having me. It's a real delight to be here with you today. 
And we're very excited to have you join us. And the the topic, the complicated topic of benzodiazepine and the combination of multiple medications. We talked on a previous podcast how multiple medications get, uh, work together to improve pain and outcome, but they also act together to cause problems. Um, Dr. Bianca Trebuzio asks a question um, of you to share some of the best practices that you have on benzodiazepines and concurrent CNS depressants. And I should explain that when we say CNS depressant, it doesn't mean uh, being sad or depressed, but rather these are drugs that combine to slow down your brain and, and cause lethargy. Um, so perhaps you could share with us some of the amazing work that your colleagues have done in decreasing opiodiazepines. Sure. Um, I'd love to share a little bit of our experience um, from the work we've done at the VA over, honestly, it's been uh, close to a decade now that we've been working to uh, to really ensure safe prescribing in several different areas for our veterans. Um, and it's been, I think, the success we've had has been because of the fact that we have collaborated um, uh, across multiple different uh, types of practice uh, practitioners and providers um, and across multiple different program offices at both a facility level, uh, regional level, what we call visions in the VA and at a national level. So the success has really been because we have mental health, pharmacy, primary care and pain kind of all working together uh, collectively over many years. Um, there were a couple of, I think, key initiatives that led to the success. The first was the opioid safety initiative, and that's what you mentioned, my colleague, uh, Friedhelm Sandbrink, who uh, has been uh, the national director for pain and has really been one of the key champions leading the, the OSI initiative at VA. Um, and that has been partnered with uh, what I have been running for the last six and a half years, which is the Psychotropic Drug Safety Initiative or the PDSI program. Um, and we've really focused on uh, safe prescribing of mental health uh, medications. Um, and one of our key targets for many, uh, many years has been benzodiazepines. So I can say a little bit more about that uh, in a minute. But then the other key partner has been our, our colleagues uh, in pharmacy with the academic detailing service and the work that pharmacy has done to really reach out and have one-on-one -on -one interactions with prescribers, educating them, and then also educating patients about what some of the risks are with opioids, with benzodiazepines, and other uh, uh, sedating and, um, uh, and uh, CNS-depressing uh, medications and some of the dangers in co-prescribing um, these medications. And, and, and that's really, like you said, the key is success. It's not one specialty. It's multiple specialties, um, mm -hmm. goal uh, professionals and their colleagues and, 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 and allied help working together. And I think that that's key to success. But people who are listening may think, wait a second, you were talking about mental health and psychotropic drugs. That's not me. You know, I have an addiction or I have pain. Um, but there are black box warnings and many people who use opioid uh, medications are also anxiety medications. Um, so mm -hmm. even though you say, oh, I work with mental health, this is really applicable to the population at large. Yeah. And actually what we know about prescribing of benzodiazepines is that the increase in prescriptions have been primarily driven by primary care prescribing um, nationally, not so much by mental health prescribing. Um, so there's actually a lot of the, the use of these medications is outside of the specialty mental health area. Uh, and that, so we, we um, these are medications that are broadly used uh, by many fields uh, to help with anxiety, to help with sleep, um, and maybe sometimes done with good intention. Uh, and, uh, and what we say to some of our patients who've been taking these for many, many years is, you know, you started this medicine for, for a reason. Um, but right now we think that the medication may be causing more risks than it is causing benefit. And we have a lot of data uh, to show that in certain populations um, and certain uh, groups of patients, that's that's true. And those are the patients that we really aim to to work with uh, for uh, safely and slowly tapering off of benzodiazepines. And that's been the focus of our work um, at the VA with the Psychotropic Drug Safety Initiative and our current benzodiazepine reduction campaign. And you've been amazingly successful at one point, and again, 10 years plus ago, the VA was criticized for having all these patients on opioids in combination of opioid and benzodiazepines. And the FDA issued black 
box warnings against that combination. And with all these programs, you dramatically, dramatically uh, decrease that um, throughout the entire large health population that you have. That's true. We, um, and I'm looking at numbers right here in front of me, are uh, the opioid benzo co-prescribing decreased 83%. Um, and that 83%. is Dr. Sandbrink's most recent. Huge. Yep. Between, I believe, yeah. Uh, and that's from going back to, I believe, uh, fiscal year 14 and then um, ending in, in fiscal year 19. So that's, uh, and that was in um, Dr. Sandbrink's recent publication uh, that just came out in JGM uh, last December, I think just a few months ago. So we've, we've really had enormous success, not just with the uh, reduction in opioids, but with the co-prescribing as well. And we've built upon the success that opioid safety initiative or OSI had, and that was primarily housed and kind of run by folks in primary care and pain. Um, and mental health joined the, uh, the team uh, with the work we're doing now in the psychotropic drug safety initiative uh, starting in July of 2019 we picked up targeting um, benzodiazepine use in high-risk populations and really trying to reduce uh, to the lowest dose necessary to still have good symptom control. And so I want to pause actually on that point uh, because the messaging we've been sending about benzo reduction is not one of, uh, of absolutes. We don't have to get everyone to zero. And not everyone maybe can get to zero. But if we can reduce a dose, we can reduce harm. We really take a harm reduction approach to benzodiazepine tapers because a lot of the data we have and evidence we have shows that there is a dose response to the risk of overdose death with benzos. So any reduction in dose we consider a success um, and that's really what we're targeting. And we don't wanna force people off of medications or make them get to zero if that's gonna be uh, something that increases their suffering. Uh, but we do wanna reduce the risk that they have um, from being exposed to these, especially if they're in one of the high risk categories, um, which we would, we would consider uh, our geriatric population. So uh, people over age 65, uh, patients who have PTSD um, or traumatic brain injury and um, patients who have a history of substance use disorder. So those are kind of, you know, some of our high risk populations that we target um, and think about most closely. And there are other healthcare systems who've done what, um, what's been done for hydrocodone, which is the number one prescribed opioid at one time. Um, they have done with hydrocodone now to Xanax and with the same type of approach as uh, safe tapering, not necessarily being completely off, um, um, but, but keeping patients safe. What I liked with the, the way that the VA approached dramatic reduction of 83% reduction in, in that nation um, is academic detailing, which is a method of teaching providers, prescriber, how to prescribe less. And they use the same kind of approach as the uh, pharma uh, pharmacists who used to, or the, 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 the drug sellers uh, in enticing physicians to prescribe. Right. (laughs) They use the drug reps. They use the same methodology uh, in, in, and psychology of getting physicians to, Hey, why don't you prescribe my Lord tab? Uh, Look at these cute brochures uh, and here's some free pens and pads uh, and using the same psychology to get uh, physicians to reduce. And one thing, I don't know if you were aware of, but I remember being told this years ago that they even hired psychologists for the nurse um, because it was very hard for them not to prescribe. But wait a second, they're anxious and they're in pain and how am I going to not give them them? And that they, they got that degree of support uh, at the beginning of your campaign to, to create these changes. Um, so I like that uh, methodology. So- yeah, you know, academic. De- mm-hmm. I was just going to say, academic detailing at VA um, has been uh, our number one partner um, in the work that I do with the uh, Psychotropic Drug Safety Initiative and with all of the uh, kind of uh, psychopharmacology work that I do for Central Office. Um, academic detailing and, and PBM have been our key partners. Dr. Melissa Christopher, the National Director for Academic Detailing, is um, is a superstar and has really led her team nationally to do amazing things. They have created educational campaigns 
um, not just for providers, but for veterans. They have an enormous amount of uh, outward facing, meaning anybody uh, can log on to the VA kind of external website. Um, you don't have to be a VA employee to get these resources, but all of, and we'll, I'll make sure that um, you have that link um, if you don't already for, for your uh, podcast mm -hmm. uh, webpage so that folks can go and take a look at all of the mater educational materials that our academic detailing service has created um, to help educate patients, especially around benzodiazepines, but, but so many other things. Uh, it's not just about um, psychiatric medications and pain medications. It's about um, antibiotic stewardship. It's about COPD. It's about HIV prep. It's uh, all sorts of things that they're helping really be um, champions and educators of prescribers and really kind of leading the way in helping ensure our uh, prescribing practices across the board are kind of at the highest quality. And when we talk about benzodiazepine safety, anxiety medicine safety, it's, 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 there's an analogy to be made with opioids is first of all, prevention. Do you even need to be on these okay. medicines in the first place? Alternatives, if you have anxiety or insomnia, these are not first line medications for you. If you stop opioids, It'll be uncomfortable, but you're not going to die from it. But if you yeah. stop benzodiazepines abruptly, it could be very dangerous. Absolutely. Um, and this was one of our, I was going to say that just to, to highlight that, that was one of our um, main concerns about truly tackling uh, this benzo reduction campaign that we've been doing uh, with the PDSI program. Um, and that is to ensure that the messaging to the field, to our prescribers, to our veterans was clear that we don't want you to stop taking these medications all of a sudden. Um, because if you've been taking them for a long time and you stop suddenly, that could be dangerous um, and could lead to seizures or death. So we had a lot of messaging around that um, and a lot of reassurance to uh, both veterans and our, um, our providers that this is going to take time and that it needs to be done very slowly. Um, if you've been taking Valium for a decade or two, it's not going to be something we stop over the next two weeks. So um, I actually, when I was still in Connecticut working in West Haven, I was integrated in primary care. And I did a lot of um, what we call primary care mental health integration uh, clinic work uh, and ended up actually essentially running a benzo taper clinic for the better part of three or four years. Because as I was doing all this work for central office about benzo use, um, the folks who were working with me in the clinic started to hear and know, and they would start sending me their patients. Um, and so I, I kind of slowly over time started collecting more and more patients um, who primary care folks were having difficulty tapering. And most of those conversations, mm -hmm. uh, you know, started by saying, you know, reassuring them on that first visit, you know, here we are, it's, it's January. Um, let's see if we can be closer to zero by this time next year. And they're like, next year? And I'm like, yeah, next year. This is going to take a year to work on. We're not going to rush into this. This isn't something we're going to taper, you know, by, by Valentine's Day. This is something we're going to taper by maybe next holiday season um, in the winter. Uh, because if you've been doing this for 10 to 15 years every day, uh, this is going to take a long, slow time to taper off. And you need to have the resources available to do that, uh, to see people slowly over time. And that's one of the biggest challenges, I think, for people outside of VA who don't have that, uh, perhaps that integration with mental health in their primary care setting. It's a real challenge for primary care folks who can only see pa patients maybe once or twice a year um, to, to successfully do a benzo taper. That's a real challenge. And, and it's a skill gap, an educational gap for the medical community. Um, while I was at ONDCP, the Department of Health and Human Services published an opioid taper, um, again, something that you guys have done over 10 years ago, but this is now available online for the entire medical community. And I urged them, um, even though we're talking about an opioid epidemic, that what the medical community really needs is a guideline of benzodiazepine tapering and that we should just take it from the VA. And I think that that's still a big need. Well, it's interesting, you know, you mentioned it as a skill, right? The idea of deprescribing or stopping medication is not something most doctors are taught in medical school. In fact, the, uh, mm -hmm. the two subspecialties that really know and understand and appreciate this, I think, are the two specialties that we're in, addiction medicine and, and geriatrics, right? These are the two subspecialties that basically spend a lot of their time tapering people off of medications. Um, most of the rest of the medical fields 
start drugs and don't necessarily think in a kind of um, in a in a regimented way about how to stop drugs. Um, whereas I think I, as a geriatric uh, psychiatrist, most of what I do is stop people's medications um, and, uh, you know, evaluate polypharmacy and people, which is people getting lots of different medications um, and try to figure out how do we streamline and reduce these meds. So benzo tapering um, is kind of like bread and butter for, for geriatrics and for and for addiction, but for the rest of medicine, they really haven't had a lot of education around this. So you're right. This is a, I think, an education gap uh, that we need to address in the in the larger medical community. But people who suffer from addiction also go to different doctors, different emergency departments, psychiatrists, and they also collect medications. And then at some point, someone needs to say, you know, stop. What can we throw out? What do we need to keep? What do we need to taper? Um, what about prevention? Um, the most common benzodiazepine that's abused is Xanax. I'll have patients who say, well, I've been, my doctor gives me this for the past seven years. And, and that's a red flag. If you're eating Xanax for seven years and someone's not prescribing it correctly, and why aren't we picking that up at the pharmacy benefit? You know, why are we paying for drugs that we know are contraindicate. I'm wondering if you have a system that that catches pre prevention of medications such as Xanax long-term or even mm -hmm. sleep aids long-term that we know are being prescribed not the way they're they're supposed to be. That's a great question. Um, and and yes, the idea of like daily Xanax for, for years um, is the kind of thing that kind of just makes me cringe, right? Because it's absolutely not the way that medication Sorry, was intended to be used. Um, and, um, you know, so there, there are a couple of things um, to, to say about that. We do have the Psychotropic Drug Safety Initiative actually uh, has several performance metrics uh, actually not several, we have a lot, we have about, I think 39 now, different per performance metrics that pull data out of the VA medical record every night. Um, and so we have updated lists daily on our informatics dashboard that can identify patients on each of these, um, uh, on each of these measures. And uh, at a facility level, and even within a facility, we can kind of uh, slice those lists in ways to show you who's on an inpatient unit or an outpatient unit um, and where they are in their, you know, the, what clinics they get their care in. And we can give you kind of really drilled down detailed lists of patients, even to the provider level. So we could pull all of the patients that I've seen and prescribed a benzodiazepine to um, who are flagged on one of our benzo metrics, right? Um, and that data is really what helps us guide our uh, quality improvement efforts locally. So we do have um, these data tools and the power of these data tools and the fact that we have this large integrated health system data from not just mental health, but also primary care and specialty treaters, um, you know, across the system at multiple facilities even. Um, and that's part of the power of these, these informatics tools that VA has. That's what powers the, the work of the academic detailers. It's what powers the work of the uh, quality improvement champions locally doing um, psychopharm uh, quality improvement. Uh, and so they really that can give them that, that like actionable hands-on data. Um, we, we don't have, uh, at a national level, we don't have hard stops or uh, restrictions on prescribing, but I do know that there are different facilities where pharmacy has chosen to kind of restrict access to things like Xanax um, so that it can only be uh, a, either a short-term use or uh, that it's not allowed to have refills, or some have even restricted uh, Xanax to the point of not allowing it to be prescribed without requiring additional kind of authorization um, through pharmacy. Uh, but I think just knowing that you can access the data and identify people most at risk, so those with a, a benzo prescription who are over 65 or those with a benzo prescription who have PTSD, um, and be able to kind of use that data um, to, to make change and to reach out to engage the veterans. And since since we've been talking so much about Xanax, I think we should tell our listeners what it is. Um, Xanax is a benzodiazepine that's usually indicated for panic disorder, correct? Correct. That's and I, I would say and that the, it works. Yeah. Well, yeah, you correct. You're the psychiatrist, so you tell me. But it's it works <laughs> would, very yeah. fast, which is why people really like it. They feel that result really fast, but it also doesn't last very long. So it doesn't last long. You need something else. And that's why it's so addicting. 
Um, and it's meant to be prescribed short term, not every day, only for you know certain uh, thing. But you, as a psychiatrist, what yeah. do, when do you need Xanax? Exactly. So I I can count on one hand how many times I've prescribed Xanax uh, in the last fifteen years of practice. So it is very infrequently used in my in my practice, and may that may largely be because I treat primarily older adults. Um, and I avoid benzodiazepines uh, at all costs in my older patients because we've got decades of, of evidence showing risk of falls um, and a variety of other things, uh, putting kind of older patients- Cognitive impairment. Co- yep, cognitive mm-hmm. impairment, um, motor vehicle accidents, falls. Um, it's just it's just not good um, in, uh, for the older brain uh, to, to get benzodiazepines. So um, I largely avoid it. But in, in general, Xanax, like you said, it's a fast on, fast off. So that means that when you That's take the, yeah, it's it. fast on and then it's fast off. So it attaches to the GABA receptor and really um, and has its effect very quickly. Um, and so it causes uh, a great deal of instant relief. And that is part of the reason why the indication for use, and one of the few reasons I will prescribe it is for people with a very specific phobia. So a very specific phobia and like triggered panic attack. So if you have someone who has a fear of flying, like a severe fear of flying, who needs to get on a plane to fly to a family funeral on the other side of the country, I will give them a Xanax to take before the plane takes off. And then one to take on the return trip and maybe one extra just in case. And I've done that. So I've prescribed patients who had to get to a family funeral on the other side of the country. Um, yeah, I gave them a prescription for three pills and it helped them to get onto the plane. And then it helped them when they had to get on the plane again the next time, because they were specifically afraid of takeoff. Takeoff was, you know, the thing that they couldn't get through without it. Um, and, uh, but the idea that you would be taking a Xanax uh, multiple times a day um, every day, so you know, four times a day, every day for years, um, you literally would be having peaks and troughs and peaks and troughs and peaks and troughs all day long. And that is kind of exactly uh, what um, makes it so addictive, right? So you, you're constantly going through what would be like little withdrawals in between doses. Uh, so you're literally withdrawing from Xanax between dose in the morning and dose at noon. And that withdrawal feels like the anxiety, right? It's very similar to the anxiety. That's the reason you started taking right. the pill in the first place. So it's this vicious cycle it's a vicious where circle. people just keep going and going and going. Um, and that is one of the reasons why kind of that very short acting, very you know, fast on, fast off kind of medication is really not the answer for uh, anxiety disorders. Um, unless you're talking about kind of that specific phobia and a targeted treatment that is just very one-time use kind of stuff. And what I love about the materials that the VA uh, has is they also give alternatives, um, such as uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or exposure and other medicines, right? Yep. Yep. So I think the, you know, the evidence would show by and large generalized anxiety disorder and even panic disorder are very responsive to cognitive behavioral therapies um, and also to selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and, and SNRIs as well. So there's a variety of kind of antidepressant medications that are also anti-anxiety medications and have good evidence to support their use. Those are both first-line treatments. Um, and you know what we find in a lot of, uh, especially in a lot of older patients who've been on benzos for years and years, is they never got those uh, treatment options. They've never been offered or had the opportunity to do CBT work. Yeah. They've never been offered or had the opportunity to take an SSRI or an SNRI because they started these pills so long ago. It was in many cases before some of these medications were on the market um, or before people really had widespread access to, um, to the evidence-based uh, psychotherapeutic um, uh, treatments. Uh, and that's one of the things I think that VA also does extraordinarily well, um, and we don't get enough credit for, is the fact that we have uh, a, an enormous amount of um, psychotherapy that we offer our veterans. And it's something that you just truly can't find in most parts of, uh, of kind of community practice is easy access to, to some of these uh, psychotherapies. And we, we've done an enormous amount of work to ensure that these evidence-based psychotherapies have been, um, uh, uh, tr- people have been trained in them and that we have access to those across all of our facilities. That's one of our top priorities, um, in part because it's, it is one of the first line treatments for a lot of these issues.
And I've seen that with the VA as well. It's not, um, you have a lot of to medications like acupuncture or yoga or massages or different things that you offer uh, veterans for pain disorders, anxiety, or, or mental health. Um, it, we, told, we talked about insomnia. So benzodiazepines are very commonly prescribed for insomnia. And as a psychiatrist, is that the right medication? No, uh, I would agree uh, that it, uh, with the previous statements that it's not the right, it's not the right medication for first line treatment for um, for anxiety. Nor should it really be our first line treatment for insomnia. I think insomnia is often a uh, a symptom of something else. So I think the first and most important uh, step uh, when someone comes in and says I'm having trouble sleeping is really doing a careful evaluation of what's the underlying cause. Um, so there's a lot of medical conditions that can lead to uh, difficulty with sleep. There are things like sleep apnea um, that cause you to awake in the middle of the night um, or feel um, uh, like you haven't rested well when you wake up the next morning. Um, there are also a lot of um, uh, mental health conditions that can cause problems with sleeping. Um, so problem sleeping uh, can be indicative of both depression or even bipolar. Um, so kind of both ends of that spectrum. But there's a lot of things that can underlie sleep disturbance. And just simply saying, oh, you're having trouble sleeping here, take this pill um, to put you to sleep is, is not the right first step, right? So and many, uh, many patients who suffer from a substance use disorder have insomnia. It's kind of the disease absolutely. process, right? Of opiate exactly, use disorder, exactly. stimulant use disorder. And so they want Alcohol something for sleep disorder. and to get another drug that's addicting is is probably not a good idea. Exactly. And, there, so one, and then you the, publish alternatives. Yeah, the, I think the, the, the one that, um, that we've been really trying to heavily uh, encourage folks to participate in, and we've been training a lot of people and expanding access to is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, so CBTI. Um, we also have, we have a, the VA has created an app uh, uh, that you can download on your iPhone or your Android phone, um, CBTI um, app that helps you with uh, sleep hygiene and then actually can help you work through some of the CBT for insomnia um, uh, steps. Is that uh, available so can, to anybody? That's available to anybody. And I have all of my veterans literally yeah. downloaded in the office with me when I'm sitting there talking to them about insomnia. So anyway, I will make sure you Ooh, so know, send, send me that app. Yeah, I'll put that. Yeah. I'll post that on the show notes. We have. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, send you the link to the CBTI. But CBTI is um, is uh, should be one of our first thoughts. Uh, we should be thinking about that. We should be educating folks about good sleep hygiene. Right. Um, most of us spend time laying in bed, staring at a glowing blue screen from either our iPad or our phone or something like that, right? Think about guilty. all the, you get totally, uh, totally guilty. Uh, but think about all the bad <laughs> habits we all have or watching TV in bed or eating something or having a glass of, of wine right before, you know, late in the evening or, you know, there's all sorts of things we do um, that are actually really bad for sleep and will cause disruptive sleep. And so educating people about good sleep hygiene uh, is actually the, the very first step, uh, along with kind of figuring out what the underlying potential medical or, or mental health uh, condition could be contributing to the sleep problem before we really diagnose someone as having kind of primary insomnia um, and thinking about a medication. So all of these things should happen first before we go to, you know, whip out our prescription pad and, and you know, solve something with a pill, because um, no pill is, uh, is a simple solution uh, to problems like insomnia. So Ambien, five or 10 milligrams, 30 days, you know, in a month, every single month, all year long. Is is that a red flag? It's not a good thing. No, it's a, it, it's a concerning thing to see someone taking Ambien every night for a long time. It's basically, it's the same as taking a benzodiazepine every night, um, which infers and or confers the same types of risks uh, um, because it's acting in many of the same ways. Uh, it has the same. And in fact, I would argue that the withdrawal and trying to stop chronic Ambien is almost more difficult than stopping uh, chronic benzodiazepine. So it's something I really uh, hesitate to use. Yeah, I've had a lot more 
severe rebound insomnia um, when stopping patients who've been taking chronic Ambien than I do uh, with the uh, chronic benzodiazepines. I've actually had fairly good success in tapering um, people who've been taking benzos for a very long time if you do it slow enough. Um, and if, if it's being used for insomnia, I send them to CBTI. Uh, you know, I send them to go learn the skills of CBTI as we're starting to taper yeah. so that they have the skills ready to go um, as they start to have some of the return of potentially having some insomnia problems. Um, we, you know, educate them about sleep hygiene as well. And we and we address any other underlying things like sleep apnea um, or any other kind of underlying sleep disturbances that could be causing problems with restorative sleep throughout the night. I heard a speaker from a prominent um addiction recovery center who said that for physicians who enter drug rehab, their number one drug of abuse was Ambien out of, out of all the different medicines. Oh, wow. I thought that that, that was medic. It doesn't necessarily surprise me. I mean, we are terrible sleepers, right? We've, we've spent uh, the better part yeah. of a decade, most of us training. Um, <laughs> and during that training, we're pretty much forced to break our sleep cycle multiple times, right? You know, you have the week you're on nights and then the week you're on days and then 30 hour shifts or yep, maybe now only that's, 24 that's hours. That's still my life, right? As an yeah. ER doctor. You're in, and yeah, exactly. And for many of us um, who continue today, even out of training, uh, you know, the, the sleep cycle is broken on a regular patterned way uh, or in a regular patterned way for, for many physicians. So sleep can be a challenge for us as a, as a group. For sure. So I, I think, like I alluded to before, I think some of our um, individual facility pharmacies have made uh, decisions to limit uh, some of the specific uh, medications that are concerning, um, essentially to make new starts um, kind of a hard stop with requiring uh, extra kind of pre-authorization through pharmacy and kind of non-formulary requests and those sorts of things. Um, and yeah, if you make it harder to start, less people end up on it and uh, you have less of those kind of chronic uh, chronic daily users that then have all those increased risks. So I think prevention of start is absolutely kind of like one of the most important pieces of this whole thing um, is really trying to identify how do we stop, you know, turn off the spigot, right? Um, from the beginning, uh, you've got a good point yep. there. Yeah. And we did that, by the way, and we should you know, the medical community deserves kudos because they have done this with opioids and we've done this. And today we really, I mean, we have a drug epidemic, we have a fentanyl epidemic, but an opioid prescription epidemic, of course we can get better, but we don't have that anymore. We, we did, we closed the faucet on that. And the way the medical community was successful, it's like you mentioned, mm -hmm. well, let's do alternatives. Let's not get you addicted to opioid in the first place. You know, if you have back yeah. pain, you have a headache, we have other creative ways to teach, to, to help you. And the people who are already on a bucket of medications, let's keep them safe and, and alive, not necessarily cut them off completely, but tapering. And we've done that with opioids. And I, I think if we want to do better and cut deaths um, for medications, we need to talk about safe prescribing in terms of all these. And that's why sleeping pills and benzodiazepines in combination with opioids, because if we want to do even better as a medical community, this is a conversation we need to have. I was just going to say, it's the, one of the, I think the, the reason we're all so worried about this is because of the the increased risk of overdose, right? And it's the combination of multiple sedating um, uh, drugs that really puts people at high risk for overdose. And that's why we've seen kind of tracking along with the, you know, the trend that goes up and to the right for opioid overdose deaths, the same thing now we're seeing and we have been seeing for the last several years with benzodiazepine overdose deaths, um, some of which are uh, in combination with opioids, but just frank underlying benzo overdoses are going up as well. And we see the same now with uh, stimulant. Um, uh, use and overdose deaths related to stimulant in large part, probably because of contamination with, uh, with fentanyl um, from illicit, uh, illicit sources and some of the methamphetamine supply in the country. So there's uh, a lot of reason to still be concerned um, about, about these overdose deaths and whatever we can do to reduce the uh, combination of sedating drugs people are taking, the, the safer we all are in the end. Now, since you brought up stimulants, I heard the VA has successful programs of contingency management with um, methamphetamine and stimulants. Is that true? Are you involved in that? We do have a contingency. 
Uh, well, I, we do have a contingency management program, and it's something that we, I think, are looking to bolster in the coming year um, as uh, the Psychotropic Drug Safety Initiative and academic detailing are preparing to launch a stimulant safety initiative. Um, so we will be um, uh, hosting myself with um, Melissa Christopher, the, uh, the lead for academic detailing, will be hosting a stimulant safety summit uh, later in February, where we're really bringing together sort of the VA and also outside of VA experts on stimulant um, uh, stimulant prescribing. So thinking about things like ADHD and, you know, when is it appropriate and how do we appropriately and safely prescribe um, for adults with ADHD, which is our population, obviously, at the VA, not, not kids, but adults. Um, and then thinking about uh, also kind of in tandem with that, uh, thinking about stimulant use disorders, um, which may in part be related to prescription misuse, but largely is probably driven by things like methamphetamine use and cocaine use um, in our population. So trying to figure out how do we offer um, and how do we ensure we have offerings for patients who have stimulant use disorder that we can get them the treatment they need. And yes, so contingency management, but also I think the other um, uh, treatment we offer at VA uh, for uh, veterans with uh, stimulant use disorder would be uh, CBT uh, techniques as well. Yeah. And being from California, uh, methamphetamine is rampant. Deaths are higher from methamphetamine than any drug, even fentanyl. Um, and it's really a terrible uh, disease, especially in homeless population and people with mental health disorder. And contingency medicine for our listeners is is something um, as simple as, well, you know what, I'll give you $5 if your uh, screen is negative, you know, and, and uh, if, if it's not, it's okay, you don't get your $5, come back next week. And I think there've been some creative solutions in, in that way of creating incentives um, for people not to use drugs. Exactly. So we're um, we're going to be we're going to be bolstering our um, our internal capacity to really address uh, the prescribing of stimulants safely um, and ensuring that we are appropriately and uh, ensuring access to treatment for stimulant use disorder. And that's really the we'll be building that out this calendar year and launching it uh, January of, of next year. So the stimulant safety initiative. I'm going to be looking out for that and, and copying More your examples. <laughs> More to come. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> you know, the, the other thing that, that you've done is connect the issue of um, drug addiction, opiate use disorder, and suicides, and, and acknowledge that connection and intervene as well. Mm -hmm. Do you want to share some of that, um, how much of an association and kind of interventions that you take? Sure. So, I mean, the the VA's number one clinical priority is suicide prevention, um, and that is uh, across not just mental health. That's across the entire VA clinically. Um, that is our number one clinical priority. So, we take suicide prevention very seriously. We recognize that um, that. Uh, there are a lot of uh, risk factors that, that go into um, a, a person or a veteran in particular um, um, thinking about or taking their own life. Uh, and many of those risk factors are associated with chronic uh, medical conditions and chronic pain. Um, also, uh, substance use disorder, as you alluded to. So we have an, a robust uh, suicide prevention um, program that involves uh, everything, you know, from having uh, frontline suicide prevention counselors and, um, and outreach folks at every facility that are reaching out and making phone calls to veterans, um, partnering with and, and uh, pairing with really powerful informatics and data tools that are helping us to identify um, the veterans at highest risk. Um, so, and I think we've also um, worked across uh, across all of our providers um, and all of our staff uh, to educate people about uh, suicide risk and, uh, and suicide prevention strategies. So it's not just the psychiatrists and the psychologists who are thinking about this. It's, um, it's the frontline um, person who's checking you in um, to your office visit in primary care. Um, and the primary care doctor and, and the nurse and the lab tech. So this is our number one priority. Um, and everyone is trying to do their best to, to keep our veterans safe um, and to make sure they get the help that they need. 
and and deserve. So thank you for that. Um, marijuana, controversial uh, subject. I mean, I've heard of people saying, you know, our veterans have access to marijuana on one hand. And now the other studies that show that marijuana is associated with a worse um, outcome in PTSD and violent behavior and worse outcome for chronic pain. Um, and uh, what's your you know, policy as a psychiatrist, and I'm sure you veterans who who yeah. request for this and and um, and hear different stories uh, rather than the real science. Yeah, so I I um, I actually listened um, yesterday to the uh, podcast that you had with Dr. Finn, I think, um, with the marijuana, yeah, um, the cannabis textbook, um, which was which was a really great uh, conversation. So, um, uh, you know, there. I think the the short and sweet of it is as a psychiatrist and specifically as a federal psychiatrist, right? So I'm employed by the VA. I am not going to be prescribing medical marijuana anytime soon. Um, so, uh, and I think my patients know, know that. <laughs> and so most of my patients have not asked. Um, but, you know, people in general, veterans are, are not going to be um, uh, you know, receiving cannabis or recommendations for cannabis as a treatment from one of their VA providers. Uh, but, uh, you know, a lot of them, depending on where they live, can not only access it medicinally from another provider outside of VA, maybe who gives them a medical marijuana card um, and prescribes quote, it. Quote, unquote, yeah, because. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you for putting the quotes on that. Um, but then, but they can also in many states now, they can just use recreationally and that's legal too. Um, and so, you know, the conversations that you have with patients, I think are important. Um, and I think it's important that we make sure our veterans know that if they choose to use these medicines outside of the recommendations that we might make, um, that they can still see treat, they can get treatment from us. They can still come see us. We will mm -hmm. treat them and we will help mm -hmm. them. And especially if, um, if the use that they have develops into a cannabis use disorder, we will treat that. Right. You know, so, um, a lot of folks, because it's sort of this touchy, you know, is it legal and not legal federally, obviously it's not federally, but at different state levels, it might be, there's a lot of, uncertainty. Um, and so I think the most important message I would want veterans to know is that, you know, let your provider at the VA know what you're doing, because it's important for us to know what's in your system, um, because that really has impact on the other medications we may or may not want to prescribe. As you discussed um, uh, with Dr. Finn, there are, you know, there are contraindications, um, you know, for prescription, you know, different medications we don't want to use in combination with um, heavy cannabis use or CBD oils or different things like that. So, you know, being, even though people are very wary of talking about those things on federal property, um, I would encourage veterans and, and folks to be open with your providers when you're meeting with them, because that helps us make uh, the most educated and informed decisions about your treatment. Right. And yeah, being honest with your doctor is always important. And I think it's not about whether it's legal or not is the question is, is this healthy for you? Exactly. Is yeah. it helping you? Is it hurting you? Yeah. Um, so advice for Dr. Bianca Tribuzio. She's a physician leader at a, educating her medical community um, about uh, benzodiazepine. Benzodiazepines and the com combination of multiple CNS depressants. What advice do you have for her as a physician leader? Both of you, physician leaders. <laughs> you know, I think um, the most important uh, piece of advice is uh, to be confident that you can do this, and that's not just to her as a as a leader, someone trying to um, you know make change among a group of providers uh, in a community that she's you know helping to lead, but also as an individual provider sitting with your patients, be confident that you can safely taper benzodiazepines. Um, and I think the way to gain that confidence is to do it um, and to take your time doing it, right? So this is not a rush. This is not a race. Um, if it took years and years for the um, medication, you know, kind of regimen to come together the way it did, which it has for most of our patients, it's going to take a little bit of time to unwind it. Um, and so I think one of the biggest um, uh, biggest uh, mistakes people make is trying to taper benzos too quickly. 
Um, and so partner with your patient and give them a sense of agency and how this is being done is the other key tip I would give. Um, so benzo tapers seem to be more successful in my experience when you lay out the options to patients, um, let them decide, you know, do they wanna cut the morning dose or the evening dose next? Um, they know what their day is like. I don't know what their day is like. Um, they may need extra help in the evening or maybe they need extra help in the morning. And so let them make the choice of the next step in your taper and really engage them kind of in a conversation about how you're gonna see this through, have them be a part of uh, understanding what are, what are we gonna see as success and help them, you know, have them involved in defining that and have them involved in the discussion about, you know, what are the warning signs we're going too fast and we need to slow down a little bit, but just keep moving forward. Um, that's the other, I think, key thing. The third key thing for success in benzo tapers is just keep it going forward. If you have to slow down and pause for a month or two, that's fine, but just keep going forward. Don't go back. Um, and that's maybe some of the key, key things I would share with her. That's, you know, that's great advice. And you know what, that's something naturally we do with medications with any disease process. I'm hearing you explain that says, well, you know, this is how I explained uh, asthmatic air inhaler, you know, use it more, use it less, use your steroid inhaler, educating and empowering your patient, whether it's asthma or diabetes exactly. and your insulin or, or your opioids or benzodiazepines. Exactly. I want to really Just thank do what you already do. I want to thank Dr. Bianca Trebuzio for her question and her leadership and educating the community. And I may want to put the two of you guys together if she has some on implementing a tool for San Diego. And thank you so much, Dr. Elsa Weekers, for the care that you provide our nation's veterans and the medical community. So really thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a real treat. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. If you would like to sponsor a show, we would be honored and grateful. Please contact us on hightruths.com. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us five stars and subscribe so you won't miss any of our informed, packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, and we hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.